We're jumping out of John. The reason that we're jumping out of John is we're focusing really on clarity in two areas. What is the gospel? We don't want to be a church that's like, hey, we're gospel-centered. We're gospel-focused. We're gospel this. We're gospel this. And we never talk about what the gospel is. You'll, you'll hear people do that as if there's some magical incantation in the word gospel, G-O-L, G-O, oh my goodness, G-O-S-P-E-L. Wow. Someone else want to do this this morning? Anybody? Uh, the gospel, right? It, the power of God to salvation is the person and the work he accomplished. That's the gospel. Jesus Christ died for your sins and rose again. That's the gospel. That's where the power is, not in the word, right? And so we want to clarify what the gospel is. We also want to clarify what the gospel response is. And part of the way that we want to do that is to teach what it's not, because there's lots of cliches that have come into Christendom that actually distract and detract from the finished work of Jesus Christ. So we're kind of taking some time to look at those. And you know, a lot of these cliches, and I, and I think they're, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. I mean, I, I would hope that someone would have given me the benefit of the doubt before I learned to focus a little bit more on clarity because my heart was in the right place. I wanted people to get saved. I didn't realize I was telling them to do eight different things to get saved and none of them, they all contradicted one another. I didn't even know that. Like my heart was pure, my motives were pure, but I was inadvertently bumping the spotlight off of Jesus Christ and bumping the spotlight onto the person that I was talking to. In fact, you'll notice all these cliches do exactly that. They focus on what you must do or what you must continue to do to be saved. And we've said this multiple times. This is the problem with the cliches. God is not interested, and when we talk about time frames. God is not interested necessarily, and I'm talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin. He's obviously interested once you're in the family, how you live, but I'm not talking about that. We're talking about being born in the family. God is not interested in the present time frame. He's not interested in the future. In other words, what you must do or continue to do, God's eyes are locked in on an event in the past called the gospel. That's where he was satisfied. That's where he wants us satisfied. And we express that satisfaction or we rely upon the finished work when we put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is what we're trying to do with this series is really just put the spotlight and keep it on Jesus Christ. That's the goal. Honestly, we're not trying to be the semantic police. We're not trying to be the word police. We're not trying to go around town and judge everybody that's not quite saying it correctly. That's not the goal at all. At the end of the day, I want my Savior exalted, and I want you and I to be cheering the fact that he alone is exalted. That's it. That's honestly it. It's about him and what he accomplished. And the fact that we get into these cliches that aren't even biblical, that's what we're going through, that distract. And you know, whose agenda do we think we're fulfilling when we do that? Well, it's not God's because he wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ. So this is the point. So as a quick review, we've been talking about this. The gospel is an objective, verifiable, historical message based on facts that happen on a day in human history. We're looking to a past event. We're looking to a completed event, not what you got to do. That's uh, the difference. Religion wants to focus on what you want to do. The gospel involves the right person and the right work. We've been saying this over and over again, but you know what? We're going to be singing about it for eternity. So if we got to repeat it a couple times in church... It's okay. We're all going to be okay. The right person is Jesus Christ. The right work is he died for you and rose again. That's the message. That's the gospel message. Now, the problem is many people don't realize the perilous situation we're in. Why do you need the gospel? Well, 
right here. We've really, in summary, we've got a twofold problem. We've got a death penalty that we cannot pay, and we have a righteousness issue. We don't possess a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, thus we don't qualify for heaven. And so this is what the gospel does. The gospel comes in and solves a problem, a perilous problem, too far above our pay grade to solve ourselves. And this is what the gospel does. And because this, this problem is so perilous, there's only one response left. And may I say it in modern terms, the response is uncle. I give up. I have to trust in another because I can't do this myself. That's the message of the gospel. We're looking to somebody else. We're looking to somebody else's work on our behalf because we realize there's no way we're digging ourselves out of this pile of manure, this spiritual manure that we find ourselves in, which is the perilous problem that we face. And this is why more good works don't do anything. This is why better behavior doesn't do anything. This is why you making a commitment to God to improve your behavior going forward is an absolute joke when it comes to solving the problem of the penalty of sin. It's an absolute joke. That just reveals somebody doesn't understand the problem. That is, that is having a, a $15,000 home ownership bill and your kid says, hey, dad, I'd like to help with that. Here's my piggy bank. You're like, bless your heart, my man. But 35 cents ain't gonna get me nowhere on this bill. That's exactly what religion does. It's like, God, let me give you my piggy bank. God's like, I got this taken care of, son. Keep the 35 cents for an ice cream cone. What used to buy an ice cream cone? I don't know what it buys anymore. And so Satan's a master distractor. You know what he doesn't want you to know? He doesn't want you to know John 19.30. And if you know John 19.30, because it's kind of the cool thing, and this is like the phrase, everyone's buying tetelestai now, it's in everyone's home. It's kind of becoming this cool, which is great. I love it. I love that fact. I mean, we got it on bracelets, right? It's this, it's this cool word. But do we understand the significance of this? This is what Satan doesn't want you to know. You can hang it in your house all, all you want. It doesn't, he doesn't care about that. He doesn't want you to know the significance of the fact that your Savior, screaming with the last breath that he possessed in this life, screamed this word to let you know that your sin debt has been paid in full. Past, present, in future, it is finished. And you know what? If I get to heaven and I misinterpreted this and Jesus said, well, it wasn't quite paid in full. You still had to do this. Then, then, I'm, then I'm going down for that because I'm gonna take him at his word. I'm putting my faith in what he said and what he did alone. And that's the message. Satan doesn't want us to be convinced that our sin debt has been paid in full. And so the Bible, God wants to keep the spotlight on Jesus Christ and what he accomplished. Satan says, put the spotlight anywhere else. I don't even care. I don't even care if some of your spotlight hits the cross, as long as it's on something else as well, he's good. Because he wants to distract, he wants to convince you that if Jesus didn't pay it in full, guess what? You gotta pay something. And that makes no sense. When you look at the terminology logically, if he paid it in full, by implication, there's nothing left for you to pay. That's how it has to work. And if salvation is a free gift, there's nothing left for you to pay. Otherwise, it ceased being a gift. And if eternal life is eternal, that means you can't lose it 20 years from now. That means it goes on. And if salvation is by grace, that means you cannot merit it or demerit it ever. Otherwise, it's not by grace. And we just look at these definitions of words. It should make sense. It should go forward. But we'll see that these gospel response cliches, they distract from that glorious message. And so we've been looking at 
these different ways that the spotlight is being bumped. This was the first one, give your heart or life to Christ. We've kind of, you know, kicked that one like a dead horse, but is it about you giving your life to Christ or Christ giving his life for you? And clearly it's number two. The second one contains the right response, believe, but we've also said if you add anything to believe, you're, you're just destroying the concept. And we looked at confession of sin because it's a biblical concept, but it's not a prerequisite to get saved. What is it? It's a mechanism by which the believer is restored to fellowship with God. They're already a child. This is a restoration of fellowship activity. We looked at praying the sinner's prayer. And apart from the fact that you can't find an example of this in the Bible, apart from the fact that you can't find an illustration of somebody leading somebody else in a prayer in the Bible, it is still the most popular way to close evangelical presentations in our day. And it's not even in the Bible. In fact, we looked, it didn't even show up in church history until the 20th century. It didn't even exist. And so we covered that cliche. We covered this one, which is becoming very big, that you have to ask for forgiveness. And we showed that asking God for something is much different than believing that God has already done something. And this cliche also is not found in the Bible, except for that one spot in the Lord's Prayer, which we uh, attempted to try to clear up with, with the context. And then what about this one, asking Jesus into your heart? Again, never found in the Bible. That alone should be enough reason for us to shed this terminology. Revelation 3.20 doesn't teach it, right? We looked at that last week. Revelation 3.20 doesn't even have ask Jesus or heart in the verse. That apparently teaches it. This is what's so ironic. And and so a lot of this has just kind of crept into our terminology. And this is, this is what we're trying to challenge each other with through this series. Let's just be clear. Let's not go outside the, the word of God in terms of what God requires as a response. We put this up on our website. It's on that QR code that you can grab on the back of the table. We put a list up of 160 verses in the New Testament that lists faith alone as the only thing you got to do to be saved. It's very overwhelming evidence to say God's got one response that coincides with grace, that magnifies the finished work of Christ, and it's faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's it. And so we see this clearly. This morning, I want to look at a six gospel response cliche. And this is uh, what, what people will say, you've got to make a public profession of faith. Now, people that believe this, they, they'll oftentimes, these are the ones that introduce like an altar call. Because they want, they, they want somebody who responds to the message that day to get up and publicly profess or at least publicly stand up in front of people so that they can get saved. And they actually believe that that extra step of public profession is what seals the deal for their salvation. And one of the big passages that we're going to look at this morning is in Romans chapter 10. Because when you look at Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 10, you're going to say, well, John, that's what it says. It does seem that that's what it says. And so we want to look at the context, and that's why I kind of ask for forgiveness, but at the same time, forgiveness for what? I mean, you come to church to study the Bible, right? So, I mean, we're here to study the Bible. And so we're going to get into it a little bit. It's just going to be, you know, fairly dense. I want to ask you to just kind of hang with me. Um, And then also just want to make myself available after this sermon for any questions or conversations. I, I sincerely mean that. Because I want us to, to really grasp and understand what's being said here because it's often a confusing passage. Uh, for many years personally, I never felt comfortable even going to Romans 10 because I didn't really understand what was going on. 
I felt very inadequate. I still feel inadequate this morning, but I feel uh, a little more ready to, to try to put some pieces together. And so before we get to Romans 10, because we're going to kind of do a, a, a build up there, I want you to notice before we even get started, I want you to notice that if you have to make a public profession of your faith, can you see how we have now just bumped the spotlight off of what Jesus did in the past and now put it on something you must do in the present? This is what all of these cliches do. So you can see that right away. It just kind of comes out loud and clear here. And so this error implies that for a person to be saved, they have to make a verbal public profession, verbal public profession. We don't want any scaredy cats in Christianity. If you can't get up front and verbally public profess, then you don't deserve salvation anyways. It's kind of the attitude, right? And if you really mean it, then you'll get up and verbally publicly confess. Now, by the way, let me just kind of say this. Is it wrong to teach people who have believed in Jesus Christ to make verbal public professions of their faith? Is that actually a wrong thing to do? No, it's a good thing to do. (laughs) Don't we want believers to do that every day of their life in conversations in the community and with family and friends? Of course we do. Don't we encourage believers to follow through with water baptism, one of the ordinances given to the local church? For what reason? So they might make a verbal public profession of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's what we want them to do. So there's nothing wrong with this at all. This is exactly what we want them to do. However, if you make this a prerequisite to be saved, that's the issue that we're taking with it. It's not that this isn't biblical. It is biblical. This is why it's come into play as a false gospel response, because it's in the Bible and people just say, oh, it's in the Bible. Let me put it here. And the problem is it's in the Bible, but it doesn't go here. It goes here. That's the problem. It is biblical, but it's not a prerequisite to be saved. By the way, if it was a prerequisite to be saved, then Jesus, what Jesus did on the cross was not enough. Now, is that, is that really a stance that we want to take when we enter heaven? Jesus, thank you for doing 99%, but did you see my one? Jesus, thank you for doing 99.9%, but did you see my 0.1%? Weren't you impressed that day I got up and verbally confessed you to the congregation? What a slap in the face. What an absolute slap in the face to think that that contributes in some way to our salvation. By the way, if you, by definition, if you have to add something to a finished work, then that is not a finished work. If you have to add something to it, even if it's small. In fact, if you added something to a finished work, aren't you technically testifying that the work is not finished? If you think that you have to publicly, verbally confess Jesus Christ, aren't you publicly, verbally testifying that what he did was not enough if you think that's what saves you? It's ironic the way this thing is twisted. And and can you hear Satan in the background chortling saying, I love this, the spotlight's getting bumped. You know, and this is what we want to avoid. By the way, I mean, this is not a major point, but just consider this. Where would this leave people that are mute? If they can't verbally, I mean, I guess they could text it and show everybody on their phone, you know, I mean, or email it. I mean, I, I don't know, but, but conceptually, someone that's mute could not even get saved because they can't verbally profess it. Also, what if someone got saved and then wasn't in a situation before they died to verbally publicly confess it? Would they go to hell? someone that trusted in the finished work of Christ, but they didn't have a chance. So, so you got some problems here. And you always have problems when you introduce 
human behavior into the equation that requires salvation. You're always going to have problems like this. This is what we're trying to point out as we go through the study. So again, why is this a gospel response cliche? Because it's, it's biblical. This is a biblical phrase. It's just put in the wrong place, right? They're, they're, you know, trains are great. But if you put the engine in the middle somewhere, it ain't going nowhere, right? You put the caboose up front, it's still part of the train. You still have all the components, just in the wrong order. And this is what we're saying here. By the way, if, uh, it is true, and let's just say this before we dive into Romans, it is true that public confession will be rewarded in eternity. And it's true that denial of Christ will cause one to lose reward in eternity. But remember, heaven's not a reward. Heaven's a what? It's a gift. Yeah. Rewards are something that you get through behavior, ongoing behavior, obviously sourced from the Spirit of God. And those are rewardable. But it in no way earns a person's salvation. In fact, remember Peter? You know, if, if we got really technical on this, then, then someone would say, well, yeah, well, then Peter didn't go to heaven. He, did he not deny Christ? How many times did he deny him? Three. He didn't even just deny him once. You know, for some people, it's like, oh, well, that'll send you to hell if you don't get up and verbally public profess because you're basically denying him. Well, d- well, Peter did it three times. And then, and then I know, I already know the comment that would come back. Yeah, but Peter repented. He straightened out. He changed. I mean, he, he finished strong. Here's what I would like to find, and I'm being facetious here, so forgive me, but I would love to see the Bible verse that says, well, if you commit murder before you get saved, that's forgivable. But if you commit murder after you're saved, that's not forgivable. I want to see the verse that distinguishes what sins Jesus died for and when, which ones count under his death and which ones don't. Because I'm assuming you can lie before you get saved and he can forgive that. But can you lie after you get saved? You ever been, I mean, I don't want to raise your hand because fingers might start coming out. Has a believer ever lied to you? Have you ever lied as a believer? Has a believer ever stolen from you? Have you ever stolen from a believer? That, you know, Tyrannosaurus Rex arms on that one. I know it's like, it gets a little too embarrassing. So at what point do the sins, what point does the timing of the sin commit have anything to do with whether or not Jesus paid the penalty for it, you see. And see, you could commit 5,000 sins before you trust in Christ, and you can commit 5,000 sins after you trust in Christ. And guess how many death penalties Jesus had to pay to pay for them all? One. He doesn't pay one for every 5,000 before and one for every 5,000 after. He paid for one. So if you committed 10,000 sins, his death counts for all of them because there's one death penalty. If you, pay, if you committed 11,000 sins, his death counts because there's one death penalty, no matter how many sins you've committed. And so that's kind of a side note. We're kind of getting distracted. I, I need to get into Romans 10 because we got a lot to cover here with Romans 10. And the way I want to handle this is simply this. I want to build context, okay? And so I want you to picture as we kind of dive into Romans 10, 9 and 10, we are in an airplane. We're going to go 30,000 foot view we're going to go 10,000 foot view. Then your parachute is going to land in the top of a tree foot view. And we're going to cut you loose out of the top of the tree and we're going to get on the ground. That's the goal this morning. All right. And so when we look at context, we've got to understand context must rule in every passage in the Bible. It, it has to rule. 
this day of ripping a verse here, ripping a verse here, ripping a verse here, and trying to put it together. It's like putting together a peanut butter and pickle sandwich. It just, it doesn't make sense. We all eat pickles. We all eat peanut butter. We all eat bread. We just don't want to typically eat them together. Okay, let me add an ingredient. Peanut butter, pickle, and fried egg. No, I'm kidding. So we got peanut butter and pickle sandwich lovers. I cannot believe they go to our church. That's terrible. And don't start making them and bringing them to me to try. I promise I won't touch them. But you know, context is important in every passage. But when we get to Romans 9, 10, 11, we have one of the most unique sections of scripture that exists in the word of God. That is my opinion. I think many people would agree. It's unique. There's something unique going on here. So we want to be extra careful with the context. 30,000 foot view, okay? Delta's coming into Atlanta here, right? We're, we're up in the air. We're coming in 30,000 foot view. What is the book of Romans all about? It's about God's righteousness. 30,000 foot view. Here it is. God's righteous. God demands perfect righteousness from man if they want to spend eternity with him. Man is not righteous. God provides righteousness through the gospel. That's the book of Romans. Righteousness required, righteousness not possessed, righteousness provided by God. That's the book of Romans in a nutshell. And then we see it worked out in different ways. 10,000 foot view. Quick layout of the book of Romans is this. Through the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, Paul uh, just succinctly declares God's great salvation package. Remember, salvation comes in three tenses. Salvation is going to address the area of righteousness, right? We talk about our twofold problem, but it's also going to address the area of deliverance from sin, okay? The good news about your God is he has not left you to deal with any of the problems that sin causes. Now, we'll, obviously, we face consequences in our daily life when we sin. I mean, we, we do. But in terms of deliverance from the problem of sin and the ultimate consequences, God has taken care of it all. And we can see this in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. And I'm going to use a multiple terms to kind of describe the same aspect of salvation. But when we talk about justification, in other words, how does God declare a sinner righteous? How does that come down the gavel of God? One of the things we need to understand is from Romans 1.1 to about Romans 5.11, Paul covers this topic of justification. How does God declare a sinner righteous? And what we're going to see is that we are saved from the penalty of sin. We gain a righteous standing before God the moment we understand the gospel and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. And this is what the message of Romans 1.1 5 through 11 teaches. We are declared righteous the moment we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is why when you see passages in scripture, and by the way, when we talk about salvation in our culture, this is typically the aspect that we're referring to. This is why when you see salvation in Romans 10, you automatically assume, oh, he means salvation from hell, because that's how we typically think. This is the aspect that we focus on a lot. And so this is deliverance from the penalty of sin. Do you know why you can be delivered from the penalty of sin? It has nothing to do with your good behavior because the penalty of sin was death. How could good behavior pay that penalty? No, death pays death. Talk about the most deeply profound statement of the year. I mean, that's so obvious, right? 
And yet when people start talking about salvation from hell, they want to bring your behavior into it. Why? Death pays death. Was the death penalty paid on your behalf or not? Yes, it was. Was it paid in full or not? Yes, it was. Then why are we talking about the penalty of sin still if you've trusted in Jesus Christ? This is why he promises you eternal life. This is why he promises you in John 3, 16 that you'll never perish. Why will you never perish? Because Jesus died for you. He died so that you wouldn't have to die. See, and this is what is taken care of in justification. Sanctification is a present tense salvation. Now, we're not being saved from the penalty of sin. We've already been saved from the penalty of sin. We're being saved from the power of sin moment by moment in our daily life. The source of sin that indwells us that still wants to lead us into acts of sin, God has even provided a way for you to be delivered from that. And this is what we call being made righteous. This is a practical outworking of righteousness according to God's resources and plans. This is when we're delivered from the power of sin. So you could say in one sentence, I have been saved and turn around in the very next breath and say, and I am being saved. And you're talking about two different aspects there. One, I have been saved from the penalty of sin, never to face that penalty, but I've got this daily deliverance from sin that I need. It's not the penalty of sin, it's the power of sin. And then glorification, chapters 8, 18 through 39, we will be saved. That's a future tense salvation. Saved from what? Not the penalty of sin, not the power of sin, although I guess that's implied, but this, we're going to be saved from the very presence of sin. This is when you get your new glorified body, no sin attached. Hallelujah. Aren't we looking forward to that day? I mean, that's going to be a great day, but it's out in the future, okay? This is righteousness realized. And so this is the first eight chapters of the book of Romans, just quickly summarized. 1 through 5.11, justification. 5.12 to about 8.16, sanctification. 8.17 to the end of the chapter, glorification. Again, notice the connection to righteousness, the overall theme of the book of Romans. How are you declared righteous? How are you being made righteous in the present? And how will you have your righteousness realized in the future? Now, those of you that know the end of Romans chapter 8, it ends with a triumphal and joyful shout. I will never forget the day that I was in Liberia with a room full of pastors, and we had been teaching Romans 1 through 8 all throughout the week, and we got to the end of the week, and I had this last section. And I'm telling you, by about the time I got to 835, the room was electric. I've never been in a room of people so excited about the word of God in my life. These men and women couldn't even sit in their seat for the last five verses of the book of Romans chapter eight. They couldn't even sit. It was electric. And everything I read, I mean, I felt like a superstar. I would just read the verse and they'd be like, yeah, pumped, man. Because this is how it's designed to make us feel, this triumphal, exultant shout. Do you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, your Lord. That's what Romans 8 ends with. That's something to get excited about. And if I run out of time this morning, we should just end there. That's a very awesome message. But chapter 9 takes a sharp right-hand turn. And I think the reason chapter 9 takes a turn is because it addresses a natural follow-up question following this exaltation, this excitement about the church age. 
let's talk a little bit more about that. So we're gonna move from the 10,000 foot view now to the top of the tree. You're in the tree now with your parachute, right? We're getting a little bit closer to the ground. We wanna, we wanna get into Romans 10, 9, and 10 here in a second. But what Paul's gonna do in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, he's gonna deal with an elephant that's taken up residence in the corner of the room. You know that illustration, right? If there was an elephant up here and no one said anything about it, you'd be like, oh, that's weird. Why, why is that elephant there? You know, everyone wants to know what's going on. And so this is what's happened as Paul kind of comes to the end of chapter eight. And, and the question is, if all of these things in Romans one through eight are true, if that's true, what's happened to God's unique and special relationship to Israel? Because it looks like he's just turned his back on that nation. This is the question. Now, why does Paul anticipate this? You know, he's writing to the Romans. Why does he anticipate this in chapter nine? I personally think that this was what Paul always faced when he went into the synagogues. As he shared this message of grace, as he shared that the Messiah must suffer and die, as he identified the Messiah as Jesus Christ, and he began to describe all of the benefits of the church age, then I think the Jews in the synagogue said, wait a minute, what about the promises made to Abraham? What, how's that all work into this? And I think Paul's anticipating that. He's seen it. He's answered the question. Now he kind of leads us into that in Romans chapter nine. In fact, if God is for his justified ones, as Romans eight says, and he will never remove his love from them, as Romans eight says, then why has he set aside his chosen people? You, you see, the, the question is, is if he can do that to Israel, how do we know he won't do that to us? That's kind of the question, right? And so Paul is gonna slow down here in Romans nine through 11, and he's gonna unfold to us the church our relative place in God's plan along with national Israel. In other words, how is God going to keep his promises to you individually, those of us in the church age, and how does he plan to keep his promises to the nation of Israel that were unconditional as well? And so when you go through Romans, and and for sake of time, I've got these verses up there, you're going to see that chapter 9 starts with Israel, it ends with Israel. Chapter 10 starts with Israel, it ends with Israel. Chapter 11 starts with Israel, it ends with Israel. Okay. Chapter 12, one, which we all memorize, right? I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. That actually is a great tie-in from, from chapter eight. It's kind of the natural tie-in. Chapters nine through 11, he's kind of taken a, a quick pause to explain some things. And this is what I believe he's explaining. Romans chapter nine, he reviews God's past election of the nation of Israel. I don't see individual election here. I see a national corporate election here in Romans chapter nine. In Romans chapter 10, he discusses the present rejection of Christ by the nation of Israel, and he discusses two concepts, very important to see. Personal righteousness needed to enter the kingdom. That's one concept he's gonna talk about in chapter 10. And physical deliverance of the nation into the kingdom. Two different things, and we'll talk about what that is. In fact, entrance into the kingdom requires a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. This is the whole point of Jesus's conversation with Nicodemus, tying us back to John chapter three. Physical birth, physical ethnicity is not enough to get into the kingdom. You have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And for a Jew, they too needed that. And if they didn't get into the kingdom because their righteousness was lacking, they were trusting in their own righteousness, then they wouldn't benefit from the nation's promises, the promises of God to the nation because they needed that individual righteousness and only the new birth can provide that. And then Romans chapter 11 discusses God's future restoration of the nation, that he does have a plan, that he is going to keep his promises 
to the nation that he made in the Abrahamic covenant. So what he's going to do in these three chapters, Paul, is explain how God's unconditional promises to the nation are still intact. However, an individual response of faith in the Messiah is required to enjoy these corporate promises. Why is that? Because God's plan is to pour out his blessings on the nation as promised in the Abrahamic covenant during the millennial kingdom. And there's only one way in the millennial kingdom. You have to have a righteousness equal to God's righteousness. And so that comes by faith in Jesus Christ. So it requires an individual response to enjoy this corporate uh, benefit. Once again, as we've been talking, faith is the only biblical response that fits with unconditional promises and covenants. Because if I have to do something else, then it's not conditional. Does that make sense? If I'm just trusting in his word, then it's unconditional. Okay, so faith is the only response that goes with unconditional promises or grace. And again, every other response we can come up with, every other condition that we can put in, it adds a requirement and thus it nullifies the unconditional nature of what God wants to do. So this is very important to even see in this context of Romans 10 when we're talking about promises to the nation. And so this section that we're about to look at is primarily about Israel, the nation as a whole, and then individual response to the gospel from within that nation, if that makes sense. So I'm kind of just trying to give us some big picture stuff here. Now, Dr. Tom Stiegel wrote a little booklet, very helpful, Uh, would recommend it if, and I think you might even be able to get it free online. If not, it's it's a cheap little booklet. But I love his quote here because I think it really captures the essence of what we're talking about. He says this, the Israelites of whom Paul wrote in Romans 9 through 11 were God's nationally chosen people by physical birth and descent, even if they were unbelievers, you see? they're part of the nation through birth, they could be unbelievers. In fact, think about the wilderness wanderings of the nation. Were anybody in that nation or anybody at that nation at that time unsaved? I think so. By the time they got to the end of of the wilderness wanderings, there were some unsaved people in that group, yet they still benefited from the promises to the nation. They still entered the promised land, right? They were still taken care of in the wilderness, these kind of things but they would not inherit and ultimately receive the fulfillment of their covenant promises unless they individually believed in Jesus Christ, were born again, and justified by God, declared righteous by God. All right, so we're treetop level. We're going to the ground level. Before we get there, a couple of quick observations before we get in. A couple more quick observations before we get in. I want you, when you look at Romans chapter 10, I want you to trace the use of the word righteousness and salvation and saved. And what we're going to notice as we trace it down is that Paul has got two parallel but distinct tracks running through this section, one called righteousness and one called salvation. Now, typically in our mind, we, we join those two into one track, right? We're going to be doing survey evangelism this Saturday. And when we talk about people getting saved, what are we talking about? They're obtaining a righteousness equal with God's righteousness through faith in the gospel. So we, oftentimes we align those two tracks into one because we're talking about deliverance from the penalty of sin. I think Paul is talking about two distinct things here, and I want to kind of show you that from the text. The other thing I want you to see is the connection of the word believe with righteousness and then the connection of the two words calling and confessing with the word, confession with the word saved, all right? One other thing I want you to notice, if you've got your Bible open to Romans 10, look how many italicized words are in Romans 10. What that should tell you right off the bat is he's quoting a lot of Old Testament scripture. 
when these biblical writers quote Old Testament scripture, you want to go back to the Old Testament passage that they took it from and even understand that context before you try to understand the New Testament context. There's a reason he's tying that stuff in here and we want to kind of draw that out. So let's walk through Romans 10 really quickly. All right, 10.1. Again, I've got saved, righteousness, all these words highlighted. Prayer to God for Israel, they may be saved. Verse three, ignorant of God's righteousness, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who does what? Believes. You see the connection of belief with righteousness. 10.5, Moses writes about the righteousness which is of the law. 10.6, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. 10.9, if you confess and believe in your heart, you will be saved. We'll come back to that one. Verse 10, with the heart, one does what? Unto righteousness believes unto righteousness. With the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Romans 10, 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So you see the connection. You've got belief, that response goes with righteousness, a result. And then you've got calling and you've got confession, that response goes with salvation, okay? So these are things I just want you to notice as we go into the text here. And so let's take a little bit of a closer look now. We're on the ground. And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage, uh, I'm going to try to move through part of this quickly so that we can kind of get to the punchline, if you will. Verse 8, okay? I want to jump to verse 8 first. It's a linchpin. It's it's a linchpin because it ties in Paul's argument with his exhortation now to his readers in verses 9 through 10. And he's exhorting them, or I'm going to make the argument, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to stop pursuing their own way of law-based righteousness. That's what 10, 1 through 4 says. They are pursuing righteousness in the wrong way. They're pursuing it through their own works, through their own efforts, right? This is what Paul rejects in Philippians 3. I don't want to be found in my own righteousness. It's a bunch of dung. It's a dung pile, right? Christ's righteousness is where I want to be found. And so it's the same concept. They're, they're misinformed on their method of law righteousness. And so Paul is now going to use the Old Testament to try to convince them that the message he's preaching is something they should understand. This is his arguments here when we get to verses four through five. And so I don't believe he's giving a formula necessarily on how someone gets saved but in Romans 10, 9 and 10, but he's giving, he's basically building off of this Old Testament cross-reference that teaches faith righteousness. This is what he's building off of. This is why he carries over mouth and heart. You're gonna, you're gonna see that when we look at this passage because the Old Testament reference that he refers to in Romans 10, 6 through 8 is Deuteronomy 30, 12 through 14. So I want you to hold your finger in Romans 10 because I want you to go back and forth You should only need two fingers this morning. I'm not going to do you wrong with all 10 here. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11. And you're going to see that this is what Paul quotes in Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. Except he's going to make a couple of subtle differences, and that's what I want to point out because I think that's significant to the passage. Let's read verse 11 of Deuteronomy 30. For this commandment which I command you today is not too mysterious for you, nor is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend into heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may do it. 
Go back to Romans 10 now, verses 6 through 8. It says, but the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, down from above, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we preach. Now, you probably notice some differences there, okay? One of the things that we're gonna see is in order to communicate this message of faith righteousness to his present-day audience, Paul is actually just using a passage from Deuteronomy that basically what he's trying to say is, guys, it's near to you. You, you should know this. This, is, this shouldn't be something new. I'm not asking you to believe something that's far out there. This is something that you should know. In fact, that was Moses' purpose in Deuteronomy. They were getting ready to go into the promised land, the, the Israelites were concerned, well, how do we know if we're going to please the Lord? How do we know if we're going to stay in fellowship with him? Not how do we get saved. That wasn't the context in Deuteronomy 30. How do we stay in fellowship with the Lord? He's saying, guys, the word of God is near you. In fact, it's as near to you as your mouth and your heart are near to you. This isn't hard. This isn't rocket scientist science. God has spelled out how he wants to be near to you. That's Moses' purpose. And so Paul, I think, is just building on this nearness concept as he talks about faith righteousness, because he's getting these reactions from these Jews. What are you bringing this new message? And Paul's like, this isn't a new message. Genesis 15, 6, how did Abraham obtain a righteousness equal with God's righteousness? He believed God. How did David receive a righteousness equal to God's righteousness? Again, he believed God. In fact, those are the two examples that Paul uses in Romans chapter four to teach that faith righteousness has always been a thing. You know, we get distracted by all the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament and all the laws. That wasn't how someone was made righteous before God. In fact, it proved that no one could be righteous before God. Always saved, always obtaining a righteousness equal to God's by grace through faith all throughout the scripture. It's never changed. And this is Paul's message, I believe, in Romans chapter 10, this nearness concept. And this is why I think as you go down now, as we come out of verse eight, you're gonna see that Paul keeps with the lingo of Deuteronomy 30. He's using the word heart. He's using the word mouth. He's working off of Deuteronomy 30 with some minor modifications. And so again, let's slow down here. Why does he do that? Why does he continue with heart and mouth? Other than 2,000 years later, we'd all be confused by that, you know, or, or potentially confused. That's not why he did it. He's using it to show that faith righteousness is near them. It doesn't have to be something they have to go. They should know this. In fact, it is so knowable, it's as close to them as their mouth and their heart is to them. How close is your mouth and heart to you? I mean, it's right here, right? You don't need this extra, you know, long explanation. You got to reach way out here to find it. It's right there. So there's a, a nearness of this. It's not too hard to understand. And so one of the things that we'll see is that Deuteronomy 30 was focused on the law and what one must do. Paul is focused on the finished work of Christ and one, what one must believe. How do I say that? Well, look at Deuteronomy 30, 14. I've kind of underlined it. But the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may what? Do it. This is a message of doing for what? For fellowship. Notice how he switches in Romans 10, 8. The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. He doesn't say that you may do it. What does he say? That basically you may believe. This is the word of faith which we preach. So he's communicating a nearness here. 
He's not giving a formula on well, your heart, your mouth, which one goes, you know, that's not what he's talking about at all. I, I don't believe. I think he's just saying this is near to you. You should know this, this concept of faith righteousness. Here are the two obstacles. And let me move quickly through these. I think I covered these briefly uh, in a previous cliche. Two obstacles Paul addresses for his present day Jewish reader in verse nine. Let's read verse nine. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so that first one is Jesus's identity. They must confess that Jesus is Lord. The Greek word confess means to say the same thing or to agree with. Now, we talked about this um, a couple of uh, weeks ago, but they, this isn't confession of sin. That's so foreign to this con- context, and this is where a lot of people go for that. This isn't confession of sin. This is confessing that Jesus is Lord. So exactly whether they to be saying the same thing as or to be agreeing with, who are they agreeing with? I believe it's God in this case and the Apostle Paul. And that is this. When that Greek word kurios is translated, it had a technical use because it was often the Greek word used to translate Yahweh, which was a Hebrew word from the Old Testament. In fact, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, the Septuagint written Uh, around 200 BC, they used this Greek word kurios to translate Yahweh over 8,600 times. So for a Jewish mind, when they saw kurios, oftentimes they associated with Yahweh. This is what Paul is saying. You've got to say the same thing, that Jesus is Yahweh. Now that would have caused a few Jews to choke, to really choke on that truth. In fact, when you jump down to Romans 10, 13, Paul quotes from Joel 2.32, and you see uh, in your translation probably the word Lord is all capitals. That's indicating that it's translating the the Hebrew word Yahweh. Guess what Greek word is used there in Romans 10.13? Kyrios. Okay, so he's using this interchangeably. And so what they were to confess is that Jesus is God or deity, that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament. And by the way, why would a Jew do this unless they had first trusted in him? Why would they confess this verbally unless they had first believed that he was? You know what I mean? They they wouldn't say this unless they already believed that he was. And that's why when you get to verse 10, verse 10 is actually the proper order. Believe happens first, then confession happens. It, It can't go out. It can't go the other order. It doesn't work that way. You don't agree with someone unless you believe what they're saying is true. And so why would they confess Jesus of Lord if they, as Lord if they didn't already believe he was Lord? So whether that's a split second before, it doesn't matter. Belief happens before confession. And we looked at a couple of weeks ago, belief happens before you call on his name. And so what happens when you believe? What does the book of Romans teach the moment you believe? You're declared righteous in God's sight. You obtain righteousness. And that's exactly what Romans 10 is teaching. What's that second obstacle? It's to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And so to, to believe in one's heart, sometimes people will try to make this distinction between your heart and your mind. And people, people I've even seen a track that they miss salvation by 18 inches, right? Heart and mind. The Bible makes no such distinction. The Bible uses mind and heart interchangeably and overlapping, basically reflecting the inner person, okay? Your, your volitional ticker, you know, the decisions you make can be reflected by your mind or your heart in the scripture. So I don't think he's making that distinction. I don't think that's what he's talking about at all here. What he's saying is that if you believed that Jesus rode from, rose from the dead, you know what you're implying by that belief? That God must have accepted his sacrifice on your behalf. Otherwise, why would God raise him? Why would God validate his death by doing a miracle and raising him? And so that's what's implied here through the readers. 
as I said before, verse 10 gives us this proper order between believing and confessing. It's belief and then verbal confession. And by the way, if verbal confession follows, or if it comes, it follows belief. It has to. Otherwise, you wouldn't confess that he is Yahweh if you didn't believe or his audience didn't believe that he was Yahweh. And so as I mentioned before, he's going to use two words now as we kind of trace these down, related but distinct, righteousness and salvation are saved. This to me is like very helpful in understanding Romans 10, what I'm about to say. So if you've been lost before, you're cloudy, kind of really hone in here because I think this is, could be helpful. I, I, I hope it's helpful. It was helpful to me. When Paul uses righteousness here in this passage, I believe he's speaking of salvation from sin's penalty, okay? This is how we typically use the word saved or salvation because this is how we typically talk. When we talk about being saved, we're typically referencing being saved from sin's penalty. Paul doesn't use saved that way in this passage. He uses righteousness, obtaining righteousness. And I think that's what he's talking about here. And he's been consistent with this, right? When you put your faith in the finished work of Christ, you obtain in that moment the righteousness of God. This is how God wants to provide his righteousness to it is, is by faith. They immediately obtain it. Romans 5, 1 tells us that we have been justified by faith, okay? Declared righteous by faith alone. And that is just consistent throughout the book of Romans. So that's the word righteousness. But Paul, when he uses salvation, and you have to bear with me here for a second because I'm gonna have to develop this and not just be like, hey, just trust me, it's all good, you know? We wanna kind of develop why, why we see this. But I believe when he uses saved or salvation here, because of this, and that's a big theological word, eschatological, just means end times context. End times context of what? The cross-reference verses he's bringing in. He's the one bringing in eschatological cross-reference verses from the Old Testament. But he's referring, I believe, to the salvation of Jews out of the coming tribulation period into the coming millennial kingdom. Why is that important? Because what's he dealing with in this entire section? The corporate promises to the nation. How's God going to deliver those to the nation? And then how do they, uh, what's the required individual response to obtain righteousness to enjoy those corporate promises when he gives them? Okay, so this is what we're talking about here when we talk about these two uh, distinct but parallel tracks of righteousness and salvation. So again, for the Jew, the kingdom is synonymous with the eternal state. If you can talk to Jews today, they still talk about the kingdom. That's their, the view of the eternal state. We talk about heaven. Now, that's a whole can of worms in and of itself, but let's just suffice it to say, 2 Corinthians 5.8 says that when we die, when we're absent from the body, we're present with the Lord. The Lord's in heaven. That's why we talk about heaven. But technically, we're going to spend eternity in the kingdom. Okay? It's not the millennial kingdom. That's an earthly component. But the eternal kingdom found in Revelation 21 and 22. That's a can of worms. I'm just telling you that when Jews heard eternity, they thought kingdom. That's really kind of the point. And this is why when Paul quotes uh, in Romans 10, 13, you'll see that that's in, in italics. He quotes Joel 2, 32. The context of Joel 2.32, we don't have time to, to turn there, unfortunately, because I'm burning the, the skids here. But Joel 2.31 gives us the context that it's the day of the Lord, okay? The day of the Lord is a period comprised of the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. That's what's, what you'll see in the Old Testament. And so he quotes Joel 2.32 regarding the day of the Lord. And so in Romans 10, Paul seems to use confession and calling interchangeably because both of these are preceded by faith. 
And this is where I think it, it all kind of comes together. For the Jew in that future day to be saved from the penalty of sin and obtain a righteousness equal to God's righteousness, they have to put their faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ just like we do, just like anybody does going forward, right? Regardless if you're part of the church or if you're in the tribulation period or wherever this might be. However, for this specific generation of Jews entering into the kingdom, enjoying the promises made to Abraham, and they'll be living during the tribulation period, they will be delivered or saved. That's how I think the word is being used here. From the tribulation period, when they call on the name of the Lord Jesus, but they'll only call on him if they've already believed in him. Does that make sense? So the, the point of the Old Testament is, for the Jews, when they, when they see the Antichrist, and, I, and I'm kind of tying together Zechariah and Revelation 19, but when the, the Euphrates River dries up and the sixth bowl judgment, and the Antichrist comes across with the armies of the world and, and seeks to destroy the Jewish nation, Jesus Christ is going to come back and protect them. Zechariah tells us that God is going to give them the spirit of mourning so that they will recognize the one whom they have pierced. That's what Zechariah 12.10 says. They're going to recognize him. And you know what? In that moment, I think they're going to believe that Jesus is Lord. They're going to believe that he died for them and rose again. And as a result, because they know Jesus is Yahweh, they are going to call upon him to save them from the Antichrist and deliver them into the kingdom. And I think this is how it all comes together. And let me just show one verse here from Zechariah 13. And I appreciate your patience this morning. That was a lot to get through. But let me just close with this. Zechariah 13, eight through nine, and it shall come to pass in all the land, says the Lord, that two thirds in it shall be cut off and die. He's talking about Jew, the Jewish nation. But one third shall be left in it. And I will bring the one third through the fire with, uh, it, or, or through the fire will refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested. He's talking about that future tribulation period. And then notice what the very next phrase says and they will call on my name. Just like we see in Romans 10, explaining to the nation how this ties in with the Old Testament. This is what Paul is doing. And then notice this, and I will answer them, and I will say, this is my people, and each, each one will say what? The Lord is my God. Now, who's the Lord according to Paul in Romans 10? Jesus. This is why they have to confess that Jesus is Lord. Because when they call on the Lord, guess who they're calling on? When they're calling on Yahweh, guess who they're calling on? They're calling on God the Son because they're gonna recognize him per Zechariah 12.10. And they're gonna basically say, Lord, they're calling on the name of the Lord, but they're probably gonna be saying, Jesus, <laughs> save us. The Antichrist is ravishing our cities, destroying you. You can read about that in Zechariah. And so this is how I believe this is all tied in. Um, and I know that's a lot of information to take in, more discussion forthcoming if, if you'd like to. I'd be happy to discuss that further with you. But I think the main thing we want to see is there's a lot more going on in Romans 10, 9 through 10 than some kind of mechanical formula on how somebody gets saved in the church age. Um, there's a lot more to the context than that. And so let's just close there with a word of prayer. Um, definitely something to think about, give you something to think about during lunch today, uh, for sure. Lord, thanks. Uh, for your word and uh, in light of just the, the density of the topic this morning, let us never forget the value of the finished work of your dear son. We just want to exalt him. We want to keep the spotlight on him. And so we're just grateful for that opportunity uh, this morning as we studied your word. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.